Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You guys can have a seat. Well, summer is in full swing, I think. Uh, we just got back from vacation last night and running in here this morning. And um, I think if, I'm, if I remember correctly, I think today is actually the first official day of summer. Am I right? Does anyone know? Yeah, yeah. Or tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. At any rate, it feels like summer is in full swing, even if technically it's not. And I have a question for you parents. How long did it take from the moment that summer started, from the moment that school ended, right, until your kids first told you that they were bored? How long did it take? Do, do you count it in weeks or days or hours? I think we count it in hours at my house. Uh, it didn't take long. And I feel like there are a couple of basic parent answers, or at least father answers, to this question that I'll share on Father's Day. Uh, either you can go with the classic, oh, hi, board, I'm dad, nice to meet you. That's a classic, yeah, yeah, that's a favorite of Coleman, all right, yeah. Or, or you can do uh, one of two similar responses. Uh, oh, you're bored? I can give you some chores to do. That should entertain you. That should occupy your time. Yeah, that's one of my f all-time favorites right there because, hey, you could get some things done that you need to get done around the house, right? Or, similarly, you could say, oh, you're bored? I guess I can get rid of all those toys you have then since you don't want them, clearly. That's another classic parent thing. Of course, you have to follow all of that up. Whichever choice you take, you have to follow it up with a rant about iPads and Disney Plus and how you only had two, cho two toys when you were a kid, you know, one that you whittled from a log and one that you chiseled with your teeth from a rock, right? And those are the only toys that you had when you were a kid, right? You have to kind of, you know, go on like that. And we, we expect, we expect though, that all of these things that our kids have, that, that we've been blessed with, that we've given them, Christmases and birthdays and whatever, we expect that, that they'll bring our kids endless hours of entertainment and fun. I mean, when we get them and we give them to them, it, it seems that way. We kind of have this expectation that that's, 
going to happen. And, and maybe I'm exaggerating somewhat in this example, but I think to a certain extent, it is true. We think that we give them this and they're going to have so much fun with it. They're not going to bother us. They're not going to get in fights with each other because it's just going to be so much fun. And, and we're so disappointed when it doesn't happen, right? We, we think, well, what, what's the problem? Maybe part of it is that our kids can be ungrateful at times. That could happen. That could be the case. Maybe part of it is that they don't really realize how great a thing that they have. You know, it's not so much that they're ungrateful, it's just that they're kind of ignorant of how wonderful things they have. Perhaps, perhaps part of it is you give them a gift at Christmas, and by summer they forgot that they even have it, right? Like it's buried somewhere in the closet. They don't even realize. They, they've totally forgotten that it's even a toy that they have. All that to say, as hard of a time as we give our kids about these things, I'm not sure that most of us ever grow out of that, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with each other, we live in a country where people have almost whatever they want. They're filled not with joy, hope, peace, but rather with anxiety, disappointment, disillusionment, anger, bitterness. Even in church, right? We see this even in church. The reality is we've been given an amazing gift from God as believers. But it doesn't take long. Or it doesn't seem to consistently produce the joy and the hope and the peace that we might expect. The cause and effect of those two things seems to be broken. It's not, or maybe is it that we're ungrateful? Is it that we don't realize what we have? Is it that we've forgotten what it was like before Christ, through the Holy Spirit, changed everything for us? You see, our passage this morning, it starts with this word, therefore, and I was always told growing up that when you see a therefore in the Bible, you should see what it's there for, right? That's always stuck with me. And so it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Paul, at this point, feels satisfied that he has proven and showed to his readers that that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's what he's been talking about for the last few chapters. Let me give you a real quick summary of everything that's happened in the first four chapters of Romans. Paul says that the gospel is salvation to all who believe. Then he makes it clear that everyone, apart from the work of God, apart from what God has done in the gospel, is under God's wrath for their sins. We all, all of us, every single person in this room, every single person on this earth have sinned. None of us, none of us seek after God. And then he told us that the gospel is how God justifies us when our, our faith is in the work 
of Christ. When we trust, when we put our confidence in what Christ has done, not what we have done. And he spends a little time, and over the last chapter, he said, it's faith that's totally and completely separated from, apart from anything in us, anything that we have done. It's faith alone that has justified us. And Paul shifts here in chapter 5 from faith, what it is and how it interacts with this justification we have, this being made right in the sight of God legally. And he shifts to this new section, this new idea, starting in chapter 5. This is how the gospel, how gospel faith should shape what we believe. But more than that, it's how this gospel faith, the reality of it, should shape our life. In fact, you might say it's how it should give us life. You feel like you have life? I mean, I know that you're still breathing, you're sitting here, but, but do you feel like you have life? If you're in Christ, Paul says you do. In fact, we'll see that while the word faith has occurred 33 times in the first four chapters of Romans, it's only going to occur three times in chapters five through eight. By contrast, life only occurred twice in the first four chapters, and it's going to occur 24 times in the next three. So Paul is shifting here to say, faith produces life. That's what it does. Faith in Christ, it produces life in the Christian. This is the hinge passage. Faith has a significant impact on our lives now and for eternity. And oftentimes we think in the church that, oh yeah, well, I believe in Jesus and that's good for me then. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. It's also significant for you now. Now. And so our passage is going to give us first three results of being justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We're going to see that in the first two verses specifically, first two and a half verses. And then it's going to give us three reminders of God's love that should strengthen our hope for this life. So let's start by looking at these three results of being justified by faith. Three results of faith. First, the very beginning, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how verse 1 ends. In other words, the first result of being justified by faith is that it provides a remedy for past sins. I don't know if you are like me, but I've got a few past sins. Anyone else? Can I get an amen? Right? All right. We were rebels against God in our sin. We were at war with Him, but now through Christ, we're at peace with Him. This is more than a mere ceasefire. I want you to understand this word peace, it's related to the Hebrew idea of shalom. It's, it's not just a ceasefire between enemies. It's actually a restoration of friendly relations. It's not that, it's not that we are still God's enemies and he's kindly decided to stay his hand to not shoot any more missiles at us or something. It's that despite the rebellion that we waged in the past, he's now our friend. 
And all this comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is this declaring how this peace was brokered, that through Jesus, this peace was able to happen, but it's calling Jesus our Lord. You see, we're no longer rebels. Rather, we've surrendered to Jesus's kingship. That's what's happened. And so... Our, rem- our past sins have been remedied. Second, we see this in verse 2. It says, through him, that's Jesus again, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so not only do we have a remedy for our past sins, but we have a present gracious reality that we are in as believers. This is what God has done for us. That through faith in Jesus, we have access. Access to what? What do we have access to? You might think, well, we've got access to God now, right? Well, Paul tells us that we have access to God other places, and that's part of what this means. But here, particularly, he says we have access into this grace in which we stand. What does Paul mean? You see, grace is what God does for the believer. He does to the believer. That, that we in no way deserve or have earned. He's gifted it to us. And when we pair that with the phrase in which we stand, it describes a state in which we now exist as believers in relation to God. A state of grace rather than law. Let me explain it this way. I don't know if you've ever been wrapped up in a really bad... Uh, relational environment, maybe at work or somewhere else. Everything you do, it's scrutinized. Feels like you're constantly in a minefield, right? If you say the wrong thing, someone is going to blast you or someone's going to get you back, or at least it feels that way, right? Even when things are going well, there's this this heaviness on you. It may not even be someone else's doing. It may sometimes even be pressure that you put on yourself in that context. And then you leave or you leave that environment or a particular person leaves that environment or something that changes and that pressure valve is released. And it's like you didn't even realize just how bad it was. Have you ever experienced that? Been somewhere where that's been like that. And afterwards, you may or may not even do anything different than you did before, and yet everything is totally different, right? Whatever that thing is that changed, and and that environment, that relational environment is is totally different, and it feels completely different, and, and, and there's just this relief that happens. And I think sometimes we feel this way with God, like, like, well, okay, I'm a Christian, but there's this, I'm, I'm in a minefield and I'm constantly scrutinized and I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm waiting for God to finally go, nope, I've had enough and get me back. But believer, that is not your standing. That's not the place in which you stand in relation to God because of what Christ has done. The other shoe is not going to drop ever.
I think Luther, Martin Luther is a great example. Before he was a believer, he strove and he strove to obey every commandment, to follow every rule, to confess every even minute sin, and it weighed on him. He was crushed under the weight of the law, and then he understood the gospel, and he rested in God's grace, and everything changed. I'm sure, I'm sure that some of what he was doing, that he did different things, but in many ways, his effort was still just as intense after God came into his life and changed his heart as it was before, and yet it was completely different. Why? Because he was no longer striving to try to remain in good standing with God, but he knew he was already standing in grace. And that gave him the sure footing to move forward. So, we have this remedy for our past sins. And Paul describes this present gracious reality we have because we're justified by faith. But then we also have a future glorious hope. He says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. There's there's a little bit of something lost in translation here that I want to try to show you. The word rejoice here, it's actually the same word that's translated boast in chapter 4, verse 2. If you remember when we were looking at that passage, we talked about how we, because we're justified by faith, we're, we can't boast in ourselves. It excludes boasting because we didn't do anything to earn it that Christ had done it instead. And so Paul is saying basically, we don't boast in ourselves, but we absolutely boast in Christ. And perhaps a better way of translating this would be that we have confident joy. We have confident joy in the glory of God. So it's more than just this, oh, I'm feeling good about things right now. Things are going pretty well. Got some good feels when I go to church. Really feeling the songs this morning and singing them. It's, it's not that that is bad, but it's, it's deeper than that. There's this deep abiding confidence that despite the ways in which my past sins continue to creep into my present reality, that since it's in God's grace that I stand, not my own works, I know that my future and ultimately on judgment day, I will be okay. The other shoe's not going to drop because it's what Christ has done, not what I have done that holds me fast. Here's the point. Our present faith gives us a future hope. Our present faith, it gives us a future hope. And that future hope should result in a present joy. Now, so let me ask you, do you have confident joy that abides despite your circumstances? Do you have confident joy that abides despite your circumstances? See, too often I think we're quick to forget what it is that God has done for us and what it means, what that means for our lives, past, present, and future. 
Like the children we are, perhaps we're ungrateful at times. Perhaps we don't understand what it is fully, what that Christ has done for us. Perhaps sometimes we're forgetful. I know sometimes I'm forgetful of what my life was like before Christ. It's been a few years. Sometimes I don't want to remember what my life was like before Christ. This is why we need to be constantly reminding one another, constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel and what it means for us. That's why we talk about Let's make Jesus known, not just so that we can make Jesus known to those who don't know him yet. Yes, that, but also we need to make Jesus known constantly to one another as believers because we're so forgetful, are we not? And so God actually provides us with some reminders here that, that strengthen our confidence and strengthen our hope. And in verses three through eight, we're going to see three Three, at least three reminders of God's love that strengthens our hope. And the first one is this, the endurance of character through our sufferings. It's the first reminder that God gives us in our life. Verse 3, it says that we rejoice in our sufferings. We don't just rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We have confident joy, he's saying, Confident joy in our suffering. I read that. I don't know about you, but it feels like when someone's pointing at you, you know, like you're in a crowd or in a public place and someone points at you and you're like, I don't know that person. And you're like looking behind you like, who are they pointing at? Who, me? But we, we have confident joy in our sufferings. And I'm going, Paul, I don't know that I always have confident joy in my sufferings. You've got to be pointing at someone else. Paul says, no, you believer, you church, do. What are you talking about, Paul? See, suffering produces endurance and endurance character. What does that mean? Implied here, suffering is suffering, uh, or trials, because we are following Christ, because of Christ. Not suffering that's a result of our sin. We've all suffered because we did stupid things, right? I have certainly paid some stupid tax in my life. And I've certainly paid some sin tax in my life. This is suffering for Christ. The word for character, it's this idea of uh, being tested or being proven. It's it's like suffering produces a tested character. Suffering doesn't make us people of character so much as it reveals to us or solidifies our character that we have in Christ. So when the refining fire of suffering reveals to us the character God has shaped in us, that gives us hope. God is doing something in my life. God is changing me. I'm different than I was before. I didn't realize it so much because everything was going well. And so, of course, of course, I'm following Christ. Of course, I'm doing whatever I'm supposed to do when everything's going well. But when things go bad and I find myself still pursuing Christ, then I know that God has done some sort of transformational work in me. My character is different than it was before. And that gives me hope that God will on that day do what he said he would do then as well. You see, 
it, it also does another thing as it refines us. It, it reveals to us the deficiencies, the flaws, the places that still need to be transformed, right? So that we're no longer ignorant of it. We go, oh, I don't have to wonder now I know God has done this solid work in me here, and, and, and I know that here's some places that God is working right now and changing me. I remember in college, this, this illustrates this for me, hopefully it does for you. In college, uh, freshmen would show up. I, so I played basketball. I wasn't very good, so don't get any thoughts of grandeur here. Um, but, but I was on the team, and, and freshmen would show up, and they would start talking about how great they were at basketball and, and how awesome, you know, the, the high school all-star they were uh, and all of these things. And um, they're all like Zac Efron or whatever in High School Musical. And they're, have you ever seen that? I only seen a clip where he tries to play basketball and it doesn't even look like he actually knows how to play basketball. Anyway, um, so what, what we'd do is we'd invite them to scrimmage at the rec. We'd go, hey, we're going to go up to the rec, the whole basketball team. And hey, freshmen who want to go out for the basketball team, you come with us and we're going to play some games. And we would scrimmage. And very quickly, you would know who was actually good at basketball and who was not and was just talking like they were good at basketball. I mean, it did not take but just one game to go, yeah, that guy is not good. He sure talked like he was, but he's not. Oh, no, that kid actually is good at basketball. It also very quickly showed you the places that you need to, to, needed to improve on, the areas of your game that you needed to work on and get better at. We may think that we have such and such character. We may think that, that, that whatever, but, but, but get in the game. Get in the game of gospel work. Check in to the game, get off the bench, and let's see. Suffer a little for Christ, and let's find out. And, 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 I, and I say that, I guess, partly as a challenge, but I also say that as, a, as an encouragement, because friends, there is something wonderfully sweet about not just thinking that a thing is true, but knowing because you've lived it even as hard as suffering can be. See, Paul is actually making a callback here to Romans 127, and you, you probably don't, wouldn't catch this in the English translation. translation. It, uh, we see it in two different things. First, we see it in the usage of the word shame here and the usage of the word shame in Romans 127, but we also see it in the word, usage of the word produce here, and the word receive in 127, because actually in the Greek, that's the same word. It's translated into two different words in English, but it's the same exact word in the original text. And so in 127, we see that men turned from God's way to behavior that should have been shameful. They disobeyed, and they did the, that disobedient work shamelessly, it says, Paul says. And... And so they received, or what it produced there was due penalty, Romans 127 says. But here, when we suffer for Christ, when we, when we don't disobey, when we obey him, even when it's difficult, even when it's unpopular, even when people don't like it, 
What we receive is a tested character that gives us a greater hope and does not put us to shame. It's not that we're pretending. We're just doing this thing shamelessly, uh, whatever. But it actually doesn't put us to shame. And why? How do we know that? There's another connection I want you to see, and it's so critical to how we can stand up through suffering and why it doesn't result in shame. One of the remarkable aspects of this passage is how often in such a short span, Paul emphasizes that all of these things come through Jesus or by Jesus. Over and over and over again in this passage, he says, through Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, through Jesus, through Jesus. When we suffer for Christ, we share in his sufferings. We suffer in the likeness of the one who suffered for us. And here's what we know about Christ's suffering. They resulted in good things, right? Christ's sufferings resulted in really good things for us. Not because the suffering itself was good, but because God is good and powerful, and he used that suffering on our behalf. And because Christ despising the shame, went to the cross anyway. Having done so, the Father exalted him. So, so friends, we know that God does good and Christ exalts us through our suffering, even though that suffering in and of itself is not good. We can be confident in that. And I think I think we lose confidence sometimes because the reality is, is I would rather have my life be easier right now than have the holiness that God is producing in me through the suffering he's allowing me to go through. I would rather have more good things in this earth than more Jesus. second reminder of God's love that strengthens our hope is the experience of the Spirit comforting our hearts. Verse 5 says that, it, that we aren't put to shame because God's love, right? We'll see momentarily what God's love is or how it's best shown in Christ's sacrifice, but the experience of that love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When Christ left, he promised his disciples that he would send the Comforter, who would lead them into truth, he promised that his presence would go with them in the Holy Spirit and empower them for the task that he had given them. For some of us, friends, this feels a little too subjective, a little too internal, right? Like the Holy Spirit filling our hearts, we, we sense his presence, we feel him or, or whatnot. This is too touchy-feely, too emotional even for us. But Paul, he has no problem with this. In fact, it's, he's emphatic about it. We're going to see, of course, that it's rooted in historical events, that, that it's seen in tangible ways in our life, but we'd miss an important element that God intends for us if we skip over the ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers, because we're scared that some may abuse that reality or overemphasize that reality. Indeed, Indeed, this connects perfectly with the previous idea of suffering. If you've ever gone through a significant trial, then perhaps you can remember a time when it seemed like every earthly support was stripped away from you. 
And just as you began to have that sensation of, 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 of terror, the terror of free fall, you know what I'm talking about? You ever have, have you ever done one of those like trust falls or like, you know, repels or jumps and you got, you're like, okay, just lean back and let yourself fall. You're like, no, you don't let yourself fall. That's not what you do in life. That's how you die, right? That feeling when you just jump off and you're just like, and the stomach goes up in your throat. You feel that spiritually through a moment of suffering where every other support is gone and you're in free fall. Just, as that, just at that moment when you've got nothing else, perhaps, perhaps you found the Spirit grabbing hold of you and reminding you of God's love and providence. Perhaps in that moment, just as you began to fall, just as it began to feel like there was nothing under you, you felt something grab you and stay you. Say, I know it feels like a free fall, but God loves you and he's in control. He has the power and it'll be okay. I can remember a time when I was struggling. I was struggling with whether or not I would step toward a path that would take away earthly comforts and most assuredly result in suffering for Christ. And I waffled for some time, but the Holy Spirit showed me in an in, 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 in internal and in, I admit, a totally subjective way, but still so tangible to my experience that Christ was sufficient and that I could hope in him. And that in him, my future would be secure. For a time, it was with the Spirit alone that I seemed to walk and move forward. The presence of God was tangible to me in a deeper way than ever before in those moments. And I would never want to go through that experience again. And yet, it has solidified something in me in terms of my relationship with God, in terms of my experience with God. This deepened my hope. It produced confident joy, even in the midst of suffering. It, it says poured into, but really it's just like outpouring. It's like an abundance. It's like the Holy Spirit just fills you up so much that it's pouring over. That, that shows how immense the presence of the Holy Spirit can be at times. It doesn't discount or cause us to ignore the more gentle and subtle ways that the Holy Spirit ministers in our life and we can and should be thankful for those intense seasons, however, and also for the less intense but still present ones. And all the, the Spirit's work will align with and come out of one truth, and it's the third reminder. It's the event of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. This is the display of God's love. This is the display that He poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The model and foundation for our suffering for Christ. When our character falters and our endurance is shaky, when we don't feel the Holy Spirit like perhaps we did at one point, we remember that it doesn't depend on us, but it depends on a historical event that has already happened and been completed in the life of Christ. And, and this isn't the first time that Paul has told us that Christ died for us, but what's so unique here, what's so unique is he emphasizes just how incredibly and surprisingly unworthy we are. It wasn't our strongest moment that Christ died for us, but our weakest 
It wasn't our most righteous moment, but our most ungodly. It wasn't our best moment, but while we were still sinners, it says, Christ died for us. Oftentimes we think about our salvation and we think about the best things that we've done and we've gone, we would never say this, but kind of in our mind we think, well, of course God died for me. Think about the things that I've done. But what Paul says is, no, 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 no. Think about your worst moments. And then look at the cross and know he's died for you. God is constantly reminding us of his love for us. Another way we can think about this is, about these three reminders is this. There is an experiential reminder of persevering in our suffering that we experience in life. There's an emotional reminder of the outpouring of the Spirit in our hearts. And there is an intellectual reminder of the sacrifice of Christ for us while we were still sinners. Paul, he brings all of this home in verses 9 through 11. In reality, he is reiterating what he's already said in verses 1 through 2, but with greater depth. Since we've been justified by Christ's sacrifice, how much more will we be saved by Jesus from God's wrath? If we were enemies and he chose to reconcile us, he chose to bring us into peace with God by his death, how much more will he save us by his life? Since our justification has reconciled us with God right now, then of course he'll save us from God's wrath then. Basically, if you have faith that God has done this in the present, you can have hope for the future. Your future in this life and your future in the next. As I said before, our present faith should, should give us a future hope and the implication is that this should result in present joy, not a joy that ignores our earthly circumstances, but a joy that transcends our earthly circumstances. I want to tell you one last story. Every once in a while, you can see this lived out in someone. And as I thought about it was the most significant moment when I've ever seen this lived out. I thought about 10 minutes, 10 minutes of my 37 years on this earth that I spent with this man in the hospital. When I was 19, I interned for a summer at a church under this youth pastor. Under my youth pastor, he'd gone to a different church, and I, and I went to intern with him, and, and it was my first paid ministry position, right? I mean, I didn't get paid very much, but, you know, it was, it was what it was. And one day the youth pastor he comes to me and he says, hey, today's my day to do hospital visits and I want you to come along with me. Do you want to come and do some hospital visits? I've never done hospital visits before. So I'm like, you know, hey, that might be a good experience. We'll see what this is like. I'm a little nervous about going into a hospital and visiting sick people and whatever. But, but okay, I'll, I'll do this. That's why I'm here. That's why I took this internship. And, and so I went with him and, and, and he said, on the way, he said, hey, uh, we're going to visit this particular gentleman and, and his name I've, has, has slipped my memory. I've forgotten it over the years. But he, but he says, we're going to visit this man, and, and, and I'll never forget the experience. This guy was, he was in his 20s, and his situation was terminal. Now, through his 20s, or he was in his 40s, I should say, and his situation was ter terminal. In his 20s and his 30s, he had stayed in, in almost a consistent state of drunkenness. 
for over a decade and a half, there was almost a day, there was almost not a day that went by where he was not completely drunk. He had done incredible damage to his family, to his wife, to his children. But sometime around when he turned 40, God had gotten a hold of him and had saved him. God had brought him into peace with him, had reconciled him, had changed and transformed him. And through difficult, he had be, difficulty, he had begun to reconcile the relationships that he had wrecked. But the years had already taken their toll and his body was shutting down. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's vital organs aren't operating and haven't been operating for a while. But it is a difficult thing to look at. And I remember entering the hospital room and I'd never seen someone in that condition before. A man who was, had been almost 200 pounds was under 100 pounds. Could hardly move on the hospital bed. It was literally weeks, maybe months from dying. You could see his body disintegrating, almost devouring itself, right? Like, it was brutal. He spoke, and his voice was weak, shallow. He labored for every single word that he said tubes and lines hooked up to him. With all of that, the most remarkable thing about the entire experience is the way in which he spoke of Jesus. That it took every ounce of energy for him to even get a single word out, and yet every single word praised his Lord. That with literally all the energy that he had, he just wanted to thank God and tell me about what Christ had done for him. His entire face, gaunt, emaciated, but it, but it radiated with something that, that is, is just intangible. See, his organs were shutting down, his body was failing, but I've rarely seen someone whose spirit was more alive. What gives someone such joy who, by all earthly accounts, has wrecked his life what gives someone so much internal vitality whose life has almost come to a close and early? What causes someone who is as good as dead physically to find a reason to rejoice in each and every fleeting moment still on this earth and to rejoice in one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ? Friends, the reality that we were lost and now we're found. The reality 
that we were under wrath. Now we're part of God's family. Soon and very soon, sickness, pain will be gone. And he'll be with the one who has done it. He understood that he was justified by faith in Christ alone. He understood what Christ had done for him. So as we remember that reality, we do so through communion. 